How's it, guys? Welcome back for another episode with me, Nick. And as always, my sometimes good buddy, Ronnie, here with me. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Nick, for having me on here. I uh, forget to down and count all the ums in your part of the podcast. Okay. I wish you all the best of that, Ronnie. You're only going to need one hand. This week's an ep- epic episode, guys. We've got Matt Proudfoot on the show with us in a little bit. So stay tuned for that. Six Nations started this weekend, so I have to ask you, Ronnie, maybe you can explain it for me and for our listeners. I was sitting last night washing the dishes, and, you know, I like to put some some music on the Google, and on comes the Welsh anthem. Here we go, it's blaring in the background. So we have, we have a combined playlist, which is Ronnie and myself and a couple of the boys, and we all add songs collectively to this. Ronnie's contribution to this whole playlist is Avril Lavigne and the Welsh National Anthem. So why the Welsh Anthem, Ronnie? You didn't add in Corsi Sikileli. Oh, well, let me tell you, I don't know. I just like the Welsh Anthem. I liked back in the day when it was Millennium Stadium with the fireworks, the the dragon, the Welsh always have a choir on the field. It's one of those songs that gives you a bit of goosebumps, I think. And the Welsh have, over the years, the Welsh have been an absolute force. You know, we, we've struggled playing against them. They've taken us right to the to the edge on, in the last World Cup in the semi-final, and they're almost beating us. And it's just a, it's a lacquer anthem. I, I like it for the same reason that you like shoulder to shoulder. The Irish national anthem. Yeah, I think my second anthem to the Springboks or the, the South African national anthem is then the Flower of Scotland. Love that with the bagpipes. It's always sick. But as you say, Island Calls is also an epic, epic tune. But Ronnie, you had quite the week this week, hey? First Giza. Computer blew up. Thanks, ESCOM, for all the electrical surges in the area. Everything that was connected to my UPS seems fine. Fortunately, my fridge also seems fine. It's also on its own surge protector. But uh, it seems the Giza blew. And it wasn't just a case of the geezer going, it was an electrical fault as well. So definitely think a surge happened and blew some of my electronics out. Yeah, and for in a first for me, they had to take your roof tiles out to access the geezer because that trapdoor thingy in your house is too small. It really sounds like you had a bit of a rough one. And for me, you know, I got my last training in the eight miles coming up this week. So I'm very, very keen for that. It's going to be a busy one down there in, in the Midlands. Hopefully some good weather, but it looks like it's going to piss with rain the whole time that I'm down there. Well, that's all right because you're really wet in the water. <laughs> I suppose that's true. Nothing like standing with those black bin bags over you waiting to start, eh? That's, that's the real no, I'm, I think I'm not so interested in your swim or anything. What I'm more interested in is how you're getting back and forth and the logistics. Are you going to hide your water bottle or some goo or something for you to replenish those reserves? I don't know where you're going to hide that under a tree. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting one, but I'm very keen for it. Anyone that is looking to support I Am Swimming for Cancer, so please, guys, check out the link. It is available there on Punted if you want to make a small donation. But even sharing it goes a long way to to reaching. We've raised over 2 million rand collectively now, the guys swimming. So that's that's really incredible. I had a little bet at work. I spoke about it on the pod last week. You know, Stormers versus Sharks. If the Sharks lost, they had to get a a bottle of brandy and, and you know outside of this i work as an attorney so i thought it's the opportunity to teach one of our candidates a lesson so i only got him the little bottle of richelieu instead of a big one you know he never specified what size the bottle of brandy must be so what happens next time is when you beat him he's also going to return the favor with a little bottle yeah that's probably true Oh, I must just specify it beforehand. But yeah, Ronnie, we had a lack of URC fixture, just a one-off, only the Sharks and Stormers playing. That was the round one. Speak for yourself about it being a lack of URC fixture. I don't think it was a very lack of one, seeing as the Stormers are my 
nemesis. Yeah, that yeah, it was a very difficult one. 46 for the Stormers, 19 for the Sharks. Bit of an odd kickoff time playing at 2 o'clock in the bloody Durban heat and humidity. Well, sure, they had to get it out of the way with Six Nations and that sort of rugby coming up after that. So get it out of the way. But yo, I can't imagine that was very fun to play in that heat. No, I mean, and more Marnie, more problems. Hey, Marnie Lubbock, you know, it wasn't even one of his best games, but he manages to snap up at least half his team's points. He scores a try. He's running the show. It's It's unbelievable what they get out of him. And he wasn't even meant to play. They only called him up after Jean-Luc Duplessis got injured. Right, would Marnie be considered a springbok? Or, or does he fall outside of the... He's part of a compulsory team, but I believe there was an exemption for due to the injuries that struck. Fair enough. Okay. All right. Well, no, he's an excellent player, right? We've said it countless times. He's really proving his worth at fly-off. And uh, I'd like to see him possibly stepping up into springbok colors and uh, making his presence felt because... Other than that, you know, we're going to rely on Pollard. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm a big fan of Marnie Lubbock. I really do rate him highly. He has such a good running game and he's also an excellent passer of the ball. So great to see him putting on a good performance. I think the Sharks really struggled in the engine room. Their locks were not generating the go forward ball that they became used to with Urban, Urban running there. But something I saw and, you know, you made comments on it last week. We can't rate Fussy suddenly after one game. And someone on Punted now comments, with Fussy, you never get, know what you're going to get. Sometimes it's Apalele, sometimes it's Brenda. And I thought that was absolutely brilliant. That's a great comment. <laughs> oh, that, was yeah, that was very shocked. He's a good player, right? But we, he's got to work on a bit of consistency there. We want to see him put in some good performances week in, week out. And that's what we want, reliability at our 15 spot but look he's still young he's got some time yeah he does have some time but he really needs to regain that form you know obviously the sides missing a lot of their main starting spring box due to the rest but that was a result i did not predict i was really quite disappointed with the shark showing in that one so this ball performance look the sharks are the world's most average team i'm a shark supporter and i've said it countless times and it's sad that i'm saying that they really are the world's most average team it's hard to argue with that. They do have a game in hand, but yeah, they're smack bang eighth on the log. Win one game the first week, beating Edinburgh, lose like this to the Stormers. It really was like two different teams. And then, Ronnie, the Six Nations, that was a big weekend's rugby. You know, Wales facing Ireland in the opener. You weren't really sure what we were going to get with Wales. A lot of the old stars under the Gatlin previous era playing their part there. I think Alan Wynne Jones on his 157th cap now. But yeah, Ireland winning that one 34 10. Yeah, so you obviously were a big mouth of this weekend's performances, saying that you're topping the log on Super Brew with the Six Nations. And I think that's because you called the biggest margin within the Wales Island game. And you took bonus points. You didn't get a margin point, which shows that you were way off, but you did get a bonus point. It's true. I think I was plus 18 to Ireland. So slightly off there, but not too far. Actually, only one from the margin point. But yeah, Ireland, Ireland had a cracker game. I mean, the pace at which they play is unreal. They they attack the space so well. Their backline looks so fluid. One thing I picked up in the game, though, a lot of soft moments being referred to the TMO. But there were a lot of things in that game that got referred that really just needed a ref's judgment call on the field. Do you think that's a byproduct of what happened with some of the controversy from coaches laying into the refs after the game. Maybe they become less confident in their in their own calls. It's definitely possible, but I, yeah, that was a lot of a lot of silliness there. I mean, George North seemed to stay down every tackle. Then you've got Johnny Loudmouth Sexton in the refs' ear, and it was a, a bit of a 
shocker with the in terms of the officiating and and those moments for me. But still a stellar game and very well played by Ireland. Not just them, but I think the next game for me is a little bit more exciting. The England 23-29 for Scotland. Scotland, three in a row, hat-trick at Twickenham to retain the Calcutta Cup. It's unbelievable. They really are the England slayers. England just can't seem to beat Scotland. I think how many games has it been? Now, five games they have been able to beat Scotland in Six Nations. I think there was one draw there, so it broke it up a bit. But they just can't seem to beat Scotland, wherever they play. Yeah, Scotland seems to have their number. You know, it looked threatening in the beginning that Max Mullins' try from the chip kick from Marcus Smith was really, really good quality rugby. But Scotland never went away. You know, they were they were constantly attacking, constantly pressing. Finn Russell running the back line nicely. And can we just say, Duhan van der Merwe. What a man. Yeah, what a try. That try of his had everything, right? So he broke the line, he straightened, he stepped, he fended, and then he ultimately scored a try. And it was like not a 20-meter try, it was a 50-meter try. It was fantastic to see. And the best of it, have you seen the photo? His shoelace was untied the whole time. <laughs> oh, that's just unbelievable. <laughs> so I put, did put a post out on Punted, which I thought was quite funny. Steve Borthwick comes out and says, you know, when he looked at the team under Eddie Jones, there was not a single thing that they were good at. And I, had, I just felt like I had to call Steve Borthwick out on that because that's not true. They've always been good at getting cut up by South African wingers. <laughs> a cheap comment there, a little bit cheeky. Edition there, but okay. Yeah, well, we don't fall on this the Clive Woodward side of things on this podcast. Then over to Italy versus France. France ultimately winning that one 29-24, but what an effort from the Italians. Yeah, so I we just need to correct what I said earlier. This was probably the most exciting game of the weekend because Italy took them really to the edge there. And it was good to see from the Italians. So many young players really just got sort of a fire in them that we haven't seen for number of years yeah the italians are playing very well and like you say the squad is very young so another two years experience on a squad like that they would have won this game against france very very well played i think ultimately those two kicks for touch at the end of the game didn't get enough meters on them to to really pressure the french line from a mall and i think that ultimately cost them their real shot at, at winning it at the death well, at the death, right, they were, what, 10, 15 meters out. And uh, it's just unfortunate that they knocked it on there. And that could have, you know, had they held onto the pool, that could have swung wide. They could have, you know, charged it up once, one or two or three phases and then scored a try and once. So it was very close. It was the end there, it was a 50-50. Yeah, it really, really was. But yeah, well done, France, keeping that unbeaten record going, kicking off the Six Nations with a win. But I think the game everybody is waiting for is coming this weekend with France versus Ireland. going to be a massive one. What's your call? What do you think? I'm backing Ireland to win that one. I'm going to back France. I'm going to back France. They just are very powerful at the moment. And yeah, although Italy pushed them, I think Italy played very well as opposed to France playing poorly. So I think France, France will be able to weather the storm. Yeah, well, let's see. Let's, let's take that bet on each other and we can report back next week. All right, guys. Now our next guest is a special one. Ronnie and I are excited to have our first World Cup winner on the pod, former Springboks and England's forward coach, Matt Proudfoot. Coach, thanks for joining us. You're most welcome. It's really a privilege to be to be here and look forward to the chat. Yeah, so Matt, can you tell us, I see it's now known that you're coming back to South Africa to coach Marty's in the Varsity Cup. Um, Ronnie and I are both former Tux alumni here, so we're hoping you don't coach them too well. But are you excited to be coming back to South Africa? Yeah, I'm really excited. After after the England stint ended abruptly, I wasn't actually going to coach. I was going to just take some time off and do some personal development. I do a bit of corporate coaching. And 
you know, I just wanted to do something different for a while. You know, it's been as back to back involved in international rugby. And before that, it was seven years with the Stormers, you know, so it was quite tiring. You don't, rugby is a 12 month thing. You don't, you don't get off time very much, you know, particularly in the UK. Every off time, it would then be flying home to see my daughter. And so it's, it's quite a, you're on the go all the time. So I wanted to take some time, reassess where I was in my career and what, I, what my next step was going to be. Got home in the middle of December and I got two, three days later, I got offered the Marty's gig, you know, and I just thought it was such a great opportunity to just to do something different. Want to be, want to go back into head coaching. And so I think it's a good opportunity to do that. No, that's great to hear, Matt. And then obviously you mentioning what happened with England. And the Six Nations was then on last night, England suffering defeat to Scotland. I don't know, you know, not being in the coaching box with the guys now, it seems like they're still still struggling a bit to string it together in the Six Nations. I think they've had a few a few injuries leading up to this mm. start of the competition. Watching the game, I can see the differences that, that they've done. I think there's some good good changes to what they've brought in. I thought they... Their breakdown work was excellent last night. The speed at which they played was 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 a lot higher than what what we played. I thought the speed at which their line out work was done is something typical of what Steve Borthwick does. He just operates at a line out wise at a speed you you can't compete against him. So I thought there were small changes. I think the biggest thing that affected them was probably a few injuries that didn't have enough momentum getters in the pack. They they there were stages in the twenty two of Scotland that they just couldn't. You know, they were putting eight, ten phases together and they just couldn't dent the line to to basically get through the defense. I thought the Scots defended really, really well. I think I can see they've moved on. They've added to their game. So but I still think they need some penetration. I don't think they had enough penetration last night. Yeah, seeing on our platform, you know, a lot of people were complaining that Manito Lagi was missing in the back line. He obviously generates yeah. quite a bit of of go yeah. forward ball. So it was a bit of an interesting one to see him not get selected in the back line there. Yeah, I think that key with Manu is um, he he needs he needs run up time into games. He needs a lot of preparation time, and I think maybe they just felt he wasn't at the level physically to to be able to do it. And I think looking at the way they played, they maybe wanted to go for a higher work rate game against Scotland rather than a power game. So I think they'll bring him back at stages and use him. He's not a player that can play four or five games back to back. Just physically where he is in his career, he can't do that amount of time. So. I think they'll use him for specific games and specific ways they want to play. But I still think, I don't think so much penetration in the back line. I thought it was more the penetration up front. They needed big ball carry. You know, if if if, if Genj doesn't get carry for them, you know, neither of the locks are big carriers. Their back row was relatively small. I thought Lewis Ludlam had probably one of his, his best games I've, I've watched him play, but he's not a big, big blindside. He doesn't get a lot of go forward. You know, they were missed a guy like, I, th- I thought particularly Don Brand didn't didn't get enough carry enough. He he needed to be their big carrier, and I don't think he carried enough. So I think that's where they were they were a little bit light. They didn't get enough enough out of their pack to carry. So this is sort of a two part question. Then now you've obviously you were involved with the Springboks. You guys coached the Springboks to the World Cup. Then you've mm-hmm. been in a completely different environment with the the English side. And, you know, Eddie Jones has been, uh, I'm going to say in the English context, a controversial figure. I think the Southern Hemisphere is very glad that he's coming back this side to coach. How different are those two team environments to coach in? You know, is it is it a big change from the Bok change room to the English change room? It's opposite extra extremes of each other. They're totally, totally on the edges of if one's there, the other one's there. They're totally different to, to they operate differently. They just everything about them is different. 
you know, the South Africans are very comfortable in the way that they play, very clear in, in what they want to do and play to their strengths. I think Eddie is a type of coach that wants continual improvement. Saying that, I don't mean the South Africans don't. I'm saying Eddie, Eddie searches for constantly for the next, for the next. He keeps pushing it, where the South Africans' development is in their execution. So it's a different mindset. It's a totally different mindset in, in the way that I suppose if you go and work for Google or you go and work for Apple, it's you know, your CEO has got a particular way of doing things. It's different. You know, they're both tech companies, but they totally operate differently. So, so I think that's, that's the key. You always look at the boss and the environment will be dictated by his personality. And, and Russ is, a, is very clear, he's very simple in what he wants to do. He's got a very clear approach. He's an excellent tactician. And, and that's what he wants. So he wants more execution from the players, where Eddie wants more adaption, more evolution, more growth. And he constantly drives you into that. I'm busy packing up my apartment. I've had three boxes of books that he's given me over the time I've been here. So it's basically been a box of books a year to read. And that's just his philosophy. You know, he just wants growth all the time. So very, very different. I think for me personally, as a coach, it's been, I couldn't have asked for better learning schools probably two of the best universities you could coaching as a coach yeah so it's been great matt uh while you're on a note of two different you know two teams operating on two completely ends of the scale from one another you're going into varsity cup now right so i mean traditionally we've utilized the varsity cup you know as a space for experimentation you know, tries counting differently depending on where they originated from. How do you approach and, and balance your coaching strategy between the, exploiting the new sort of experimental rules, keeping in mind that, you know, one eye on, on national setup, you know, either does the Springbok setup nudge you a bit and say coach a specific way, or do you sort of exploit the rules and what's in front of you? No, I think South Africans are South Africans. They play a very specific brand of rugby. Hmm. I think coming into an environment, you've got, got to be very understanding of the players you have their particular skill sets and it's not about you being dictatorial and saying this is the way i want to play it's it's more of how do we want to play and 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 what suits the team what's the dna of the team you know i could have, want to have a style of whatever and it just doesn't suit them so i don't think i haven't come in and tinkered very heavily with the style that they that they've played in the past my only mandate i came with three three specific areas that I said I was gonna gonna focus on. The first was making their value structure that they had more tangible. So make it live, make it I think values in a team is really important because when you get to big games, those are what pull you through. So I was gonna make sure that the values that they had really lived, that the players lived it. So I thought for me to be an example to them, be the first rule, you know, if you want to be a leader, you've got to live the organization's values. The second one was was hard work or work ethic. So particularly on the ball and off the ball, just got a very few specific areas that I want to drive about work rate. And the third one was standards of training. So just be very clear and around how we do things. So my my belief, well, two of my big values are A, my family, my child, and B, I want to keep improving. So I want to make these guys better rugby players. So that's going to be my main driving force is just try and get them to train better, try and get them to value hard work and to be a tighter unit. And then all in that, just trying to make them better rugby players. I think that's, if I can do that over the period of time that I'm there, then I've added value. Without a doubt, that's definitely true. Am I correct, Matt? This is not your first involvement in the the Varsity Cup. You were previously with Pucker. When it started. So it was first the F&B Super Bowl. I think we won that twice. 
And then it changed over to the Varsity Cup in, what year was that? 2008. 2008, 2008 yeah. I, I was involved in the first one and got lost in the semi-final to, to UCT. So I was part of the first one. So I, I just value the competition. I think students are, are, a, are a strange breed to, to coach. They, it's, it's not their, their primary focus, rugby. And it mustn't be their primary focus. At the end of the day, statistically, probably maybe 10% of the players I'm coaching will go on to be professional rugby players. Most of these guys are going to go in a year or two years' time are going to be entering the workforce. So it's a strange, strange group of players to be coaching. But the key about students is, oh, they're very curious and they, and they, they, they demand a lot from you. So being, being a coach for that, that's really rewarding. The more you give, the more they take. So that's, that's the rewarding part of it. That's the part I enjoy about it is that you can just give and give and give and the players take it and they evolve and they're curious and they want to get better. And they, because a lot of them will, will never again play, play rugby. So this is, their, this is their big shot. You know? So they want to give it everything they got. And the, the ethos of, of Varsity Cup where, where you're playing, particularly Marty's are playing in front of 20,000 students, it's a high emotive environment. That's just such a rewarding experience, you know, to see these guys put it all on the line. You know, it's, they just put it all out there. That's, that's really, really rewarding to be part of. Yeah, the Varsity Cup really is rugby that rocks. I mean, when we were back at Tux in our student days, we used to have so much fun at the stadiums watching the games there. Guys had a, a little too much beer on occasion. It was I mean, that's good. what Varsities are about. You know, Varsities are, are for that. You know, I mean, you, you two both, the first thing you said to me, were you proud tuckies? I mean... Because of that experience, you value your alma mater. You value the time you had there. And that's exactly why it works. It's a great competition. That's for sure. Are we, are we expecting a Tux Marty's final again this year? I'm a little bit worried about, about Picker, to be fair. They're, a, they're probably the most experienced team if you're looking at the squads at the moment. Their coaching team has been together now for four or five years. So they're very, very experienced. Getting there, we play away there. So playing there is a difficult game. I'm worried about them. They will be will be tough. And then UCT. UCT is always a really, really tough game. They they just, you know, you you tend to underestimate them and they bite you. I've been bitten by them before, so I'll never I'll never say no to UCT. You know, I just know they they're a dangerous, dangerous kettle of fish. So I think, you know, those will be the big four. And any any semifinal finals, it's, it comes down to the day. It comes down to two or three big decisions on the day. So I'm trying to prepare the guys to be able to make make better decisions. That's why the standard of training is important to me, that they can make the decisions on the field and try and understand where the game is and make better decisions in the game that when you get to finals and semifinals, that the players are equipped to do that. Yeah, I think it's going to be exciting. You've got a tough one as a starter, then you're facing Ikes in the opening round. So mm-hmm. we, played them, we played them a week ago, beat them 29-22. It was a tough game, a really tough game. Tom Dawson Squibb's a clever man, clever coach. He his team plays for him, you know. He's got flecky coaching with him, so he's got a lot of experience there. There's a lot of ex-professionals coaching with him. Uh, Nick Groom's coaching there. Thurlow Peterson's coaching there. So a lot of experienced guys who've played a lot of rugby or, or in and around him. So he's got a good coaching group with him. Yeah, it's a good dress rehearsal for what's to come. Yeah, very good. Matt, I actually just want to jump jump back to 2019. I think mm-hmm. any chat with you, we wouldn't be doing it any service if we didn't discuss what you were able to achieve with the Springboks. I think uh, especially the scrum and set pieces, they were discussed in sort of the dark corners of the braai. But after, you know, what the Springboks did, I think a lot more discussions were talking about 
dominant set pieces. We're talking about dominant scrubs, and that really came out in that game. So I, I just want to, I just want to hear your take on on what the secret was. Was it talent for players, a willingness to experiment? Was it pure discipline in training and in the game? How were you able to, in my opinion, truly decimate what I believe was a traditionally strong forward pack from England? I think we had two good packs of forwards. I think we had a group of 18, 19 really, really talented, competitive packs. You know, there were over two packs of forwards there that really could compete against each other. And, and we used 2018 very well in the preparation to prepare both packs. So we, we could constantly, you didn't know who was the first choice. So there was a lot of internal competition. Secondly, Rossi valued, initially pushed them all really heavily. 2018, he came to me and he said, he wanted the scrum as well to be a, a weapon to generate dominance and, and, and penalties. And they were, I just think South Africa's tight forwards are really, the quality they have in this area, in this time frame is, is exceptional. They've got really, if you're, looking, if you're looking at locks in the world, you're going to go a long way to beat Etzebert, Diaga, you know, Peter Steff was still second row, then Mostert, who's playing at Munster. Erke Snowman. Erke Snowman. You know, there were five second rows that could play, you know, that are all 203, 204, 205, 120 kilos. You know, countries don't have that. You know, France doesn't have that. New Zealand doesn't have that. Australia's got it. Argentina doesn't have it. So not many countries have that. You know, then you look at their front row. I mean, you know, Stephen and Beast were exceptional. Beast was so hungry to go out on a, on a, on a high. They brought the best out in each other. You know, so we had an exceptional tight pack of forwards. And then you had just loose forwards, a plethora of loose forwards, you know, from, you know, you could pick anybody. You could, you know, Marcel didn't come into it, but Raynaud Alster that was, was, on, was on the fringes. You know, you had just a plethora of loose forwards, you know, they, without the big three, without Dwayne, without Sia, without Peter Steff, you're not even talking about the three of them. I mean, they were just, as a, as a unit, the way they played was just incredible. So when your head coach values it, you've got great players. For me, it was then down to just aligning them, aligning them in the same mentality and not trying to overcoach them. Trying to just allow them to to do what they did, you know. So value the scrum, gave guys in the pack, you know, drive, let them drive it, and drive, guys to drive them all, you know. And 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 they valued it, and they knew this was the this was where they could get an advantage over the opposition. Yeah. You know? So it was it wasn't it wasn't a lot of overcoaching. I suppose a big part of that group. I mean, if you look at Stephen, France, Eben, Peter, Steph, Dwayne, Sia, I'd had them for six, seven years at the Stormers. You know, a lot, a big part of that group. I'd coached for a long, long, long time. So we didn't have to tinker too much with with what we had been doing. It was more just aligning them, keeping them aligned. This is what we're doing. This is our focus. This is where we're going. And, and then they went. And I mean, another big thing. From the 2019 World Cup, the box were exceedingly fit. I mean, the photos leading up, not sure if there was any Photoshop there, just intimidate everyone. But the team looked yeah. clean and fit as anything leading up to that World Cup. Yeah, the, I think that's where probably South Africa has an advantage over everybody. Or the Southern Hemisphere has an advantage over everybody else. They've got a longer running because of the Rugby Championship. So the Northern Hemisphere players now, they play the Six Nations, which actually batters them. The Six Nations is tougher than the rugby championship as a, as a, as a rugby competition. The, the rugby championship as a travel is ex- exceedingly tough. But in a World Cup here, the, the rugby championship is only a four-round competition. So it's not a long competition where the Northern Hemisphere plays now, they play a full Six Nations. They come out of Six Nations, they end off with the, their finals and their, and their semifinals, and, and then it's Europe as well. Before they go into their break, which is in about May time, they, they then go into about a month's break and then a preparation. They've got a, I think England would have had, I think, eight, eight weeks where South Africa has 
the rugby championship, you have you come out of that for a couple of weeks, then you run straight through into the World Cup. So you've got a longer longer run-up time with the team. So you can do a lot right in your preparation if your preparation is right. And our preparation was right in 2019 when we won the rugby championship. We we had good preparation in that period of time. So I think the fact that the Springboks are resting now for the next couple of weeks will mean that they, they won't be overplayed now because a lot of them will go back in, into into the European Cup final and have to play European Cup finals. And, and all the South African teams are doing well. So that's a concern for me is we will have Springboks playing high-level finals rugby right before the, the rugby championship. So they'll be fatigued, fatigued going into the rugby championship. So that's a bit of a concern for me is, is where we had them fresh, coming under that fresh straight into the rugby championship, which was good. Yeah, it's challenges that, that they're having to overcome now that we are playing in Europe. Yeah. Oh, we, look, yeah, which we never had back in 2019. So I think, I think the fact that they've got this agreement with the pony system, that they've got the agreement with the franchises to rest them now so that they're resting now. So I think the franchises will struggle, which has been quite surprising for me, the way the Stormers have played this weekend. They will struggle for the next three, four weeks. We're going to struggle franchise-wise the next three, four weeks. So you would have done, obviously, with England prep on, on the big games for the World Cup and the big fixtures coming up. Who are, you, who are your top four sides going into the World Cup? Uh, France, New Zealand, South Africa. I don't think Ireland. I still think <laughs> Ireland. I think the thing with Ireland is they don't have much growth left because Leinster is Ireland and they're together for 12 months of the year. Yeah. When everybody else doesn't have that, that time. So their growth happens now. And then when, when everybody gets to their, their pre-camps, they've been together for a whole year. There's, they're doing the same stuff where everybody else is growing. So unless, unless Farrell can really do something different with them and freshen them up, there's not a lot that you can do with Ireland now. You know, they, they're, pretty, they're, pretty, they're going to be close to what they're going to be really competitive, the Six Nations. It's going to be tough to beat Ireland. They're going to be exceptional in the Six Nations. And you'll probably see towards the latter part of the Six Nations, the other side will slowly start catching them up. And that happened if you saw last year where the French sides overtook Leinster towards the end of the competition. So they always start strong and then they, they slow down a bit where everybody else catches them up. So I think that's going to happen. So I still think probably England, France, New Zealand, South Africa, that's probably my, my bet for, for, for the top four. Then I wouldn't throw Mr. Jones away. <laughs> yeah, I think there's many people wanting to see what the, the Wallabies can do in a potential quarterfinal against England. But saying that, you the scary thing. The scary thing is, we struggle to beat them. We struggle to beat an underpowered Australian team in June. We struggle. The talent they've got is exceptional. Their their pack just they don't have the power pack. But if they get Skelton back, they get a few big forwards back from the Northern Hemisphere. Then they're going to be very, very, and, and, and Eddie's going to be angry. He's going to be I angry. Australia's definitely a dark horse for me, but yeah, it's uh, we it depends, watch it depends how tough he can make the pack and who's going to play at 10. That's going to be the big difference. If he, if he gets that balance right, they're going to be, they're going to be, they're going to be unbelievable. Unbelievable. Mm. Yeah, it's always fascinating for me to watch on our page how the commentary changes as the game goes. You know, new coaching. Now people are starting to punt the Wallabies as potential candidates in the World Cup. Whereas three, four months ago, they were losing to Italy and everyone was writing them off. So things change very, very quickly in this game. Look, but it is an exceptional coach, exceptional coach. He is, he is the skill of coaching, the, the, the craft of coaching. He's an exceptional, talented coach. He's a very, very hard man, a very tough boss to work for. But he's a, he is such a smart tactician and he is an exceptional, gifted coach. He's a teacher by trade. 
So his ability to coach players and bring the best out of players is I'm astounded at it. Astounded. So where he can take an average player to his capacity to do that as a coach is is frightening. It's frightening. Yeah, it seems like it was only really the the Clive Woodward brigade and and followers that had a big issue there. The rest of the rugby world loves Eddie Jones. So I like to say that there's going to be a, a lot of focus on that potential quarterfinal. But you've now said four teams that are the teams to watch is France. South Africa, the All Blacks. Those three can't all make it through if they meet each other in the quarterfinals. So if you were with the box, who would you rather face in a quarterfinal, France or the All Blacks? All Blacks. I have to agree with that. So potential... It's a difficult one, but yeah. No, without a doubt, the All Blacks. France in France. <laughs> You're kidding me. <laughs> <laughs> but that's quite an opening game for the World Cup as well, hey? France versus the, the All Blacks as the opening fixture. No, I'm busy with they really 12-6 up against Italy. They just... they. They're in their purple patch of, of, of talent at the moment. And the, their rugby environment is, is probably the only rugby environment that's really growing worldwide. Probably them mm-hmm. in the States are growing. Their, their rugby environments are growing. Where the rest of the world are tailing off, are, are struggling. Their domestic games are struggling. And just having it in France is going to be, oh, it's going to be incredible. It's going to be absolutely incredible. The Springboks know how to beat the All Blacks. They know how to beat the All Blacks. They, they just batter the living hell out of them and they'll beat them. And now to do it, the emotive game for them. The French are a difficult customer because they just don't die. They never die, on, and that's different. That's very, very different. And they, they physically can handle our power where the All Blacks can't handle our power. Now, that game against France last year was really, really something special to watch. But now, you know, you spoke about Ireland and Leinster. You know, they sort of reached their peak and what they can do as a side. And then you look over at France. They've selected nine debutants for the Six Nations which to me is an incredible number of, of new players to add in a World Cup year. Is that, am I off base there or is nine quite a lot? I think it's very clever. So they, they, we know they have, a, they have a very clever, the word I'm looking for, succession plan with players. So they're building capacity at the moment. They know the Six Nations isn't important to them. It's not important to win it. It would be lovely for them to win it, but it's not what they're going to go by. The last thing that they want is, is to have the country on a high, winning the Six Nations, going to the World Cup. They would lot rather still trying to be hungry with the player group. So they're creating depth and hunger in the playing group by picking a lot of younger guys that, and then resting maybe five or six senior guys. I mean, if they find a gem out of these younger guys now that they've picked an absolute gem, they've added to their squad. So now they, they're actually getting better. That's the scary thing. No, it is very scary. And I'm actually really excited to watch France play in the World Cup. They, they're really a nice side to watch at the moment. And then, Matt, we, we actually had a chat about it on the podcast last week. So something that's crept up in the South African media a lot and a lot through Jake White is these 4G pitches that are played on in Europe. Having coached in Europe and obviously played with South African sides there, are the 4G pitches really that different? I've got two big injuries on them in my playing career. So really? the wrong player to ask, yeah. I think they're great training pitches. And the problem being in the Northern Hemisphere is, I mean, a place like Newcastle, where midwinter, December... November, December, January, February. There's nothing you can do to a pitch. It just turns into a mud bath. Mm-hmm. So to be able to cut costs, to be able to manage a club, they had to do something. So it's it's something that doesn't require a lot of upkeep. But I don't think it being a forward, I don't don't like it. I don't like how I feel on it. I don't like the way my foot feels in the turf. I don't like it. And as I say, I got injured badly on two of them. None of them had anything to do with the pitch, but I had two big injuries. Nothing is a substitute for real cross. 
I just, I just, I just think, you know, even the Deso pitches are better. You know, Newlands was a Deso pitch, so it was a 50-50. And I think that's probably the best, the best way to go when you have a 50-50 pitch. Is, is, is if you, but I still think you need grass. You need, you need, a, you need a turf. Just the way the foot moves, you know, the way the foot stops, and you know that giving the knee, you've got some giving that in the in, in the grass where you don't have it in in a 4G pitch. You just don't have that. Gear. I don't think scrummaging scrummaging is different. I think it's great for training. I think it's a great training pitch. I think I would make training pitches available for for everybody as 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 4G pitches where you can train on them and that your training pitches then can handle the footage. Particularly, you know, if you've got under twenties and you've got women's training on the same facilities. You know, I think those those are good training pitches, but I wouldn't. I don't think it's the right thing for a for a game. No, I mean to us, it's a completely foreign thing. So hearing Jake speak out about it and the players not really enjoying it, I thought I'd take the opportunity to ask that from someone that actually yeah, I, look. I mean, at the international, we don't see it a lot, so it's not something I've really been exposed to in the past eight years. You know, and then at the Stormers, we had the Deso pitch, which was a fifty fifty, and and that was beautiful. I mean, Newlands. On a, on, a, on, a, on a dry day is a beautiful pitch. When it gets wet underneath the mountain, it's terrible because it just gets wet. You know? yeah. So, look, I mean, we, our rugby is now a European-based game, and we've got to understand that in Europe from November to February is, is horrible. It's horrible. And, and it costs a hell of a lot in manpower, and it costs a hell of a lot in upkeep to keep pitches playable during that time. You know, groundsmen with the equipment, with, you know, they're spiking when, it's, when it snows and when it freezes. What do you do with grass pitches when it freezes? You think you can't plan it, so your game gets postponed. To me, there's, you have to have a balance. England's got a great training facility at Penny Hill Park, which is a grass pitch. And, and literally, that pitch is covered and lighted, lit, when it's not being used. So, but again, that's, that's, I mean, the upkeep on that thing is, I've seen the upkeep. You know, the minute we offer it, they're spiking it, they putting covers on, they're putting lights onto it to get it to grow in the winter, you know, the grass to survive. So I think that's where the balance is coming is, is how do you make, because that's the problem we've got in the game is, is how do you keep the game financially robust? You know, you know, how much ever you're spending on your pitches, you know, you're taking it out of some budget somewhere else where, where that money's got to come from somewhere. No, for sure. It's a balancing act there. Yeah. Matt, I'm just going to use the opportunities to ask you one more question. It'll be the last one from me. You know, just to discuss something what we've spoken about on the podcast before. And having coached up north, I know was with the English England setup. You know, can you just maybe add what you think uh, we gain as a, as a South African nation playing in in the URC? What do we gain that we didn't quite get in in Super Rugby? I think we get a get, get a game that probably, if you look at the spectrum of rugby, which is probably continuity on the one hand and contest on the other hand, we're getting a game which is a little bit more contest driven, which is a little bit closer to our DNA where the set piece is put under a lot more pressure. We probably mm. New Zealand, Australia, it's a continuity-based game, so it's the set piece is more restart. So I think for that, it's great. I think the other thing that we get is we get used to being refereed by referees from Wales, from Ireland, from Scotland. Mm. From so we're getting used to, to foreign-based referees, and then we're getting used to foreign-based game, which is now you've got five countries in, in one competition, plus now we play France, and is a, is a sixth country. So when you play... Is six countries you're getting you're now rubbing shoulders with, which which I think for our player group is is really really good. You know, probably something Jake is going to shoot me for, but at the end of the day, our players are professional players. We've been putting them in an international window where they are marketable. They aren't marketable in the New Zealand environment. They aren't marketable in the Australian environment, but they are marketable in the in the European environment. So as a, 
as a young player who who wants to grow his career, he's now in a shop window. So he, he he needs to perform consistently. If he wants to take the jump, then it's up to him to take the jump. But he's now he's now in a shop window, which leads to him developing his game to being. So I think it's good for us in that sense. I mean, South Africa's got just looking at the talent I've got at Stellenbosch. It's it's frightening. We've got exceptional players. We we never have to worry about losing players. We, we have to worry about having the competitions to coach them through, the right stages for to coach them through, but we'll always have the players. That's one thing our school system produces. So I think I think the, the URC and, and the European Cup is, is, we couldn't ask for a better competition. I wouldn't want to play Six Nations. I think Six Nations is a, is a great financial value for us. A financial, it's a financial gain. But I think the rugby championship, to have the Springboks playing in the rugby championship where you play week, you play once a year, you're playing twice against the All Blacks. Best I think it's of both. Yeah, best of both. Because yeah. let's say we play Six Nations and we've got Italy at home. You're going to get 20,000 people to that game. But if you're playing South Africa against the All Blacks, you can take it to Ellis Park or you can take it to F&B or you can take it and you could fill a stadium. You'll get 90,000 people to buy a ticket to that game. We, I think there, I would rather stick the Springboks, I would stick them in the in the rugby championship. I think it's just, it's you know, I can remember the, the 81 Flower Series, waking up and watching that. You know, New Zealand, South Africa is in our blood. Yeah. I wouldn't want to lose that that competition. Thank you very much for joining us, Matt. We really, really appreciate you being on with no us. Problem. Yeah. And good luck for the Varsity Cup until you meet Tux in the final. <laughs> well, we played them at home this year. So. But why don't you guys come down to the game and come have a watch? We um, definitely will do. Right. I think we'll have Challenge to accepted. <laughs> come, come say hi and we'll have a beer afterwards. Thanks very much, Matt. Enjoy the rest of the Sunday. Thanks, Matt. Thank Matt. you very much. Appreciate it, Matt. Thank you. Okay, Ronnie. Well, that was really like a chat with Matt. What a legend. I think we're going to have to go visit him down in Stellenbosch, watch Tux get a win over Marty's there on the Green Mile. But is the Green Mile Stellenbosch or UCT? I don't know. We can figure it out when we get there. But in other rugby news, did you see Adi Sevier is off to Japan? Yeah, that's good. I think it's exciting for him. A lot of those New Zealand players finally find themselves playing their trade up there. I don't want to call it soft rugby, but it's perhaps perhaps an, an area of the game or competitions where they can perhaps prolong their career a couple, couple of years if they go and play there. Yeah, it can definitely prolong. I mean, half the South African squad, if not more, is currently playing in Japan. But that was a bit of a worry. Faf getting injured this weekend. Not sure yet how severe that is. But Malcolm Marks and Quacha absolutely dominating for their clubs. Quacha has been on real form and Malcolm Marks is one of the top try scorers in League One now. So My only frustration with that is it's not on Supersport. I mean, I haven't found any of those Japanese games on Supersport. So since we have so many players in that, in that league, Supersport needs to make a plan. Come on, Supersport. Yeah, I agree. It would be really lucky to watch that. And like you say, it's where most of our players are playing. So why can't we get access to those games? You take a look at Cheslin Colby and Quibus Reinach having cracker games this weekend as well for Montpellier. Reinach getting two try assists, Colby with a try assist and 128 meters run. So the boys are doing it all around the world at the moment. It's like Rossi said, we, we loan our players out to go, you know, export the resources elsewhere globally, earn some good money, learn under some great coaches and then come back home and apply their trade for the Springboks here, which is fantastic. Yeah, it works out well for us, that's for sure. And then I think just a big shout out to the Blue Bulls. They are officially the first team to offer formal contracts to female rugby players, having contracted a squad of 35. So very, very well done, Bulls. I didn't actually even know that female players were contracted. Yeah, it's, it's the nice first professional contracts offered to female players in South Africa from the Bulls. They're... Yeah, no, that's excellent. So it's it's elevating from an amateur status to, to what the men's game saw 
in the mid nineties. Yeah, and they will go by the daisies. Okay. Well, it is the Bobberton daisy being transfer flower, right? Excited to see that develop and hopefully some more unions will get on board and make this opportunity available. And then this week's fan topic, Ronnie, coming in from Harry Edgecombe. And actually the perfect topic for the chat we had with Matt a little bit earlier. So Harry asked us, at what point do you blame the players for a loss and not the coach? England lost again under new management. And to me, it's clearly a player at slash attitude problem that they face. Ronnie, I'll let you tackle that one first. Look, I want to argue that your players will lose a game for you. But your coach will lose a season for you. That's that's the reality of it. I think, you know, we talk about the Sharks, Neil Powell, talk about Wayne Pivak's exit and, and Warren Gatlin coming in for Wales and Borthwick. So all three of those coaches are relatively new coaches and they've all lost this, this past weekend. So I think it's still early days to say whether they are fit for, for the roles that they've been put in. I think it's going to definitely take some time. You know, Matt said in, in, in the interview we had with him where he wants to change the mindset about allowing the players to, to make the decisions at the right time. And that's not something that happens overnight or in a week or two or three. You know, that takes months. So let's see these coaches try and do something over, over the span of the season. I just, I don't think you can, you can blame a specific loss on a coach. It's more the season that belongs to the coach. No, for sure. And I think he only had something like 12 days to coach the squad. But I do think it's a bit of both. I think players and coaches need to share the blame. I think some combinations didn't generate the kind of game plan that they wanted for England. And I mean, a guy like Dan Cole, he got absolutely smoked in 2019. He's really old. I'm not sure that he's the best fit for the England squad. But, you know, it'll take some time for them to settle on what Borthwick believes the best combinations are. I take offense to the fact that you call Dan Cole old. Because uh, he's not that much older than us, is he? I'm only 21, Ronnie, so I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, yeah, no, and I'm 20 and I'm 20. But yeah, guys, I think that's it from us this week. Thank you so much for joining us. Ronnie and I had a lack of time. That interview was really one of one of my favorites from the pod so far. And we'll catch you back here next week, Wednesday. Okay.